So what I'm going to talk about today is fox hunting as a traditional ritual, but as something that has actually been, like most of the stuff I talk about, completely misunderstood in what its function is, even by the people who enact the practices of it. You hear fox hunting, you think, oh, aristocratic, right? Wrong, though. Anyone can do this practice. When you look at the people that are actually part of the hunt now, these are all just normal people. Just listen to their accents. You have the values of aristocrats. You've got the values of a king. Why do you think you call for freedom? Freedom is a value of an aristocrat. They come out of the mythos from King Arthur, don't tread on me. It's imitated by Henry VIII, passes to the aristocracy, passes everyone else, as demonstrated in the Robin Hood legends, the same don't tread on me nature. It is a uniquely English type of hunting. It emerges in England in the 16th century. It was enacted by the cavalry as a training in the Napoleonic Wars. I'm going to read this excerpt from the Green Knight and Gawain. I'm checking into the moral order to verify what is right. And when it comes to fox hunting, the Green Knight is actually the first existent reference in the literature, 500 years old, maybe older, and would come from tradition that's even older than that. After mass of a morsel, he and his men partook. Merry was the morning, for his mount then he called. All the huntsmen that on horse behind him should follow were ready mounted to ride arrayed at the gates. Wondrous fair were the fields, for the frost clung there, and red rose hued over the rack arises the sun, sailing clear along the coasts of the cloudy heavens. The hunters loosed hounds by a halt border. The rocks rang in the wood to their roar of the horn. Some fell on the line to where the fox was lying, crossing and recrossing it in the cunning of their craft. A hound then gives tongue, the huntsman names him. Round him press his companions in a pack all snuffing, running forth in a rabble, then right in his path. The fox flits before them, they find him at once. When they see him by sight, they pursue him hotly, decrying him full clearly with a clamour of wrath. He dodges and ever doubles through many a dense coppice, and looping oft he lurks and listens under fences. At last, at a little ditch, he leaps over a thorn hedge, sneaks out secretly by the side of a thicket, weans he in out of the wood and away by his wiles, the hounds. Thus he went unawares to watch that was posted, where fierce on him fell three foes at once, all grey, here he was hallooed with the hunters came on him. Yonder was he assailed with snarling tongues. Then to hark to the hounds, it was heart's delight. There he was threatened, and oft thief he was called, with ever the trailers at his tail, so that tarry he could not. Oft was he run at, if he rushed outwards. Oft he swerved in again, so subtle was Raynard Fox. He spurred through a spinney to espy there the villain, where the hounds he had heard that hard on him pressed. Reynard on his road came through a rough thicket, and all the rabble in a rush they were right on his heels. The man is aware of the wild thing, and watchful awaits him. Brings out his bright band, and at the beast hurls it, sword, bright band. And he blenched at the blade, and would have backed if he could. A hound hasted up, and right before the horse's feet they fell on him, and worried there the wily one with a wild clamour. The lord quickly alights and lifts him at once, snatching him swiftly from their slavering mouths, holds him high over his head, hallooing loudly, and there bay at him fiercely with many furious hounds. Huntsmen hurried thither with horns full many, ever sounding the assembly till they saw the master, when together had come his company noble, 
all that ever bore bugle were blowing at once, and all the others hallooed that had not a horn. It was the merriest music that ever men hearkened, the resounding song there raised that for Reynard's soul awoke. To hounds they pay their fees, their heads they fondly stroke, and Reynard then they seize, and off they skin his cloak. And then homeward they hastened, for at hand was now night, making strong music of their mighty horns, as you see at the start, and at the end are connected. In a mass, the holy book is held above the priest's head. The king, or the lord, holds the fox above his head. So they're both sacred in their own way. It's saying that this process of going out and facing the dragon willing, willingly is higher than the hierarchy itself. It's higher than the king itself. Just like the priest when he lifts the book up, saying that the spirit of Christ, let's say, or the spirit of the religion, is higher than us, in this, or than me in this hierarchy as a priest. The king is a religious figure, and the king hunts. He's got the touch of the sacred about him, the queen, the king's spirit. That means that all the practices that king enacts have that quality, especially when they're related to war. As Kipling talks about in his The Magic Square, the warrior and the priest are very closely related. Spiritual war and, and physical war are, are similar. Monks, in terms of the bonding and, and what you go through, is that you're different from other people because you can't live in the sacred 24 hours a day in awe, in the all space, in the, the mystery of a, of, a, of a religion. You can't be fighting a war 24 hours a day either. You're leaving the castle after saying a sacred mass. Everyone's gathered there, the whole society's gathered there, the whole community. You all sing the songs together, and those songs, the logos, is the so are the songs of civilization. The same thing happens in the wild. The hunter's loose hound by a halt border. That's the border of the wood, and they sound the horn on approach. The horn, as we know, which represents chaos, a tool to harness chaos, the horn itself is designed by man. Order is square, chaos is round, the horn is round, a bugle is round. You also use it as a sound. It extends you to control the hounds. The half-creature, which is half-wild, made an extension of us, as an organ of us, these foxhounds, are released at the wood, because the green wood is the border. When you enter the green wood, you're entering the unknown proper, and it's released right then. All this stuff is procedure, and you should... You should it's used in the fox hunt itself, goes out into the unknown and brings and informs something that's chaotic, else it will emerge within you and you'll become a dragon. That's why you rest, that's why the Sabbath exists. The hound gives tongue, the huntsman names him. That's significant too, because it's the logos. To name something is a kind of creation. You bring it under your control in some way. It's said that hounds tend to take on the personality of the names they're given. Man is aware of the wild thing, Watchful awaits him, brings out his bright brand, and at the beast hurls it. So that's the whole process of going out into the unknown. Face it willingly, and you watch, and you, you absorb its pattern of behavior, brandishes his sword, which is a symbol of judgment too, of thought itself. Because thought cuts. We discriminate. We cut things off at, as Aristotle said, cut things off at their joints. It is the symbol of order and the symbol of chaos, which is the fox, which is cornered. He throws that down in front of it. That's our humanity, what's sacred in us, what's divine in us, as sub-creators, put between the dragon and the hounds. 
And that's what captures him. If nothing else can understand, Sword understands, uh, Logos understands. And think about it, that's true. Fox is much faster than a human, but how are we able to defeat it? Because of the sword, because of civilization, because of the mass, because of the spirit. That's what this really is. The victory at the end of it is a triumph of everything that's divine in us over the craftiness of wild nature. It begins with a mass, the sun rises, and it, by the end of this, it's come down. What's really important here is that it's showing that the actual act of it is a sacred thing that the warrior goes and does. The quest is a sacred thing. Because if you don't have that renewal, the hierarchy collapses. When together they come to his company noble, all that ever bore bugle were blowing at once, all of them were their horns, the music, and all the others hallooed, which they still do now, right, the hallooing. It was the merriest music that ever men hearkened. What does that mean? That's a sacred music. If it's the highest music that ever men heard, hearkened is heard, the resounding song there raised that for Fox's soul awoke. That means both. It's awaking the soul of it and turning it into spirit. Church music, think about that. It's saying this is that it's connected to the mass itself. That's a clue to its aweness and the experience of it. So when people say that hunters they love seeing a creature ripped in pieces like a kid with a magnifying glass burning dogs, no. Killing the fox upholds the spirit. And that's true as much now as it was before. The reason why it's a fox is important because it steals, because it kills lambs. Think about Jesus. The fox steals from what we shepherd. What upholds us, it bites away at it. A mass, of course, it's a liturgy. It's a bringing down of the spirit of Jesus and eating the, the wafer and the wine. This is part of the same thing because it uplifts your spirit by consuming it. It's not a savage act. So to think about this thing like it's a, a pet, it's not a pet, it's a wild creature. To kill it, to complete the teleology of this quest, is deeply needed by man. Or why can't you do it some other way? It has to be this way. These creatures are symbolic. They're deeply nested there. And by killing it and eating it, that's recognized in you by the value hierarchy, the sacred experience. All the hounds go to eat it, jumps off his horse, grabs it and lifts it. The dragon's held up, the fox is held up. Even the fox master is a servant of the distributed cognition of the organism that is the fox hunt. A wild thing is killed, but then it's soul's release, which is why the, they, on fox hunts, of course, they should kill the fox and then eat it, because that's an assimilation of the whole dragon, and they skin it. So that's showing you, too, is that this facing of the dragon, that's what you do. You chop up the dragon, don't you? You turn it into a tool, symbolizing the process is giving you things that you wouldn't otherwise have. When you ride a horse for two seconds, you, you go, oh my God, why do they put themselves through all this pain and torture to do this stuff? because it's a religious ritual.
that they would have stopped doing this already. It's because it's part of the freeborn Englishman. And his rights aren't in the law. He'll keep doing it because it's in his constitution, the real Englishman's constitution, not the written thing, but what's deep down in us. They can't help not do it. Now, of course, I know that the English are the experts of this, the, the, especially the dangerous element of the hunt. But what the Americans have seen here is like the Green Knight shows, is it the mass? You can see in this video that, that to be blessed by the priest before it is definitely more of the moral order of what's going on. God is good, and especially on a day like today, it is right to give him thanks and praise. May God preserve and bless and keep you now and forever. Amen. And hunters become good at this stuff. They've gone inside the fox itself by seeing its patterns of action on many, many hunts. can see the fox. They become the fox. There's a great book called The Falcon, and it's about a man that studies falcons so much that he becomes a falcon. He can see it, and that's, so, that's true of this ability we have to become the things that we observe. It's respected in that way. It's a sacrifice. You're using your energy, your physical energy, to lift up even the fox's soul, to lift up this practice and tradition. It's a tribute to the meme complex, let's say in objective terms, the spirit, the value hierarchy that's in all of us. It's a, it's a sacrifice to that, and you go through all the pain and at the end, you're inspirited with positive awe and endorphins from that spirit, from that thing that you sacrifice to, a god, or our geist, our spirit that we all share. You think, oh, what do you mean? It's just a sport. No, because it's traditional. It's linked to stuff that's deep in the unconscious, it's linked of, of our culture, and in us, quite in actuality. It differs slightly between different clubs. One of them is actually bottle green that they wear, the, co the coats that they wear. But normally, of course, the coat is the hunting pink, but it's a scarlet. Uniforms from the Duke of Wellington's expedition, it's the same as the soldiers had. Full members of a club usually have a crest or some or buttons that have the crest on it, and a club recruits you in. It makes its own decision about whether you can uh, become a full member. It's up to them. And if you attend a hunt, you wear black, a black coat. Outside of the hunt days, you wear a thing called a rat catcher, which is a tweed. The Englishman's kilt is is tweed, really. It's 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 a rat catcher because it's of the landscape. You wear it and you assert that you are of the landscape. You might ask yourself, why why do people put so much effort into the preparation of their horses, to the breeding of their hairs, to the keeping their coats groomed? None of this is done for appearance, even if they don't realize it themselves. Aesthetics have embedded in them a way of being, a way of acting in its involvements, where it came from. Some people might say, I care about action. I'm not about aesthetics or about what it looks like. No, 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 you don't understand. Everything is behavioral pattern. Even a jacket has an in order to. When you wear something, you are doing, you are acting. An action expressed in the world. So to say that I'm a man of action, I don't care what I wear, you're simply saying, I'm a man of action, I don't care how I act. So it's not just a look, it never is. The stuff that the hunters wear in the ceremony, the red, is the equipment of heroes, Duke of Wellington and the soldiers and what they wore, the wider procedure of going to war. Why else would it be an appropriate practice for war and cavalry if this procedure and the equipment that's used for it did not in some way 
embody it, did not in some way have the spirit of it. So when you go out on the hunt and you go and enact this practice, you are not in a way, you are actually in act, enacting a small part of the being of one of our greatest heroes. The reason why cavalry and military do it, keep this stuff in high shine, it is preparing you for, for the war. You'll see things stick out that are really important, actually for survival. You won't be flippant about certain, about certain things that are necessary. Now, on top of that, it's also an act of demonstration for the other people in the organism. You are quite literally showing your preparation. I'm showing that I can be relied on. I am prepared, ready to go. Stops you from injuring yourself. You are demonstrating that you are competent. You're not a risk to them because they can see that you're not, because they'll notice those things stand out. When a fake person tries to steal the valor of a real veteran and wear the uniforms, pretend they're Marines, a real Marine, he notices when a little thing's out of place because he's done it over and over and over and over and over again. If one of his comrades has it out of place, it's a signal that he might not be competent. He doesn't have the inhabited virtue of a cavalryman. All the stuff that's in the Green Knight occurs in a real fox hunt. The master of the hunt is, is cognitively speaking, the king. And you're all on this what teleology, this purpose is to capture this dragon, to kill this dragon. Whippers in are the yellers. They blow the horns to keep the hounds in check towards the objective. And they might have an idea about where it, they should go, but they keep it to themselves. They let the master do it. There's a whole community, the followers on that follow the hunt around. The farmers are involved. Everyone's involved. And not just as spectators, if you see a fox, you call it out. Even when you go past a place and the people aren't following, they'll do the same thing if they've seen it. You are all sensory appendages of this one organism. Quest you're going on as a group. That's why it's so sacred, because this is what we did tribally. Even though there are paid employees that are servants, people that are members of the club that wear the red coat, they are all servants of the one king. Even the, the other hunters are the master of the hunt. He's just the person that makes the decisions about where the hounds go when they lose the scent. You're also in service of the hounds themselves. It doesn't matter if someone's paid or someone's not, and that king changes depending once you've joined the club and go up in the hierarchy. When you've earned it, the people that wear the black that are, are in their hunting coats and riding with the hunt, perhaps they are wanting to be part of the club. People in their rat catcher, their tweed, who are initiates. So all these uniforms tell everyone who's competent, who's not, who's new, who's not. You don't need permission to come to the hunt. You can follow along. Of course, you get uh, told off if you are dangerous to anyone, and it's up to them whether you join their club or not. And that's the whole point, though. It has its initiation rituals. It has its rites of passage. It's not for you to question why they might recruit, say, yes, we'd like you to wear our blazer. And so when it comes to hunt day, permission's been asked over the farmers already in advance. The landowners are constantly engaging with the masters of the hunt, the club. The farmers attend the balls, all the social functions of the club they have outside of it. And they also have an important role to play. They know that they're custodians over this part of the realm. And the farmer gives a sausage, sausages and uh, gin and ginger to the 
hunt when it arrives. So there's a transaction there and they're treated with respect, of course, and they follow, often follow along. In a way, it's a kind of communion. You're eating something. You're being inspirited with England itself. Alcohol was called spirit because it does inspirit you with a kind of energy in preparation for what you're about to face, which is an ordeal. Put some footage here or here, all the coming off the horse endlessly, because it seems like it's a you know, a wimps affair or what sometimes you see riding along on that horse. Where do long and mad horses my top hat? But no, no man. It's dangerous. There's a reason why it was a preparation for war. Turn up early at first light because you want to get the fox while it's still digesting its meal, don't you? <laughs> and they set off. From then onwards, from dawn till dusk, the master of the hunt, they're in a flow state when they go through the hunt chasing this fox around. And the scent breaks off of the hounds and you complete that circle because you've absorbed too the spirit of these, the patterns of action, the ways of behaving of the hounds. Cast the hounds that way and the whippers in all go, whoosh, cast the hounds that way until if they find the scent again. And if they don't, they might uh, pick another place to, to go to cover. Going to cover is going into a hiding place or forest or whatnot where foxes hide to find where they are. That really basically is it. A chase of something very cunning that goes over itself, that doubles back upon its own tracks and trails, and they're extremely fast. And you're all kept in order too, because if you cross the path of something, you could stuff up the whole hunt. So you all have to follow exactly where that master's gone. Everywhere you're riding was where the fox has been. So you're also absorbing the idos. And if you see it somewhere, it's your, you should be tally-ho. You should be saying it's over here. That's essentially it. And fox is caught, killed. It's the spirit of the organism of man, the world that we've given form to, defeating na na pure nature on its own. And that's beautiful. That's a, that's a religious practice. Cognitively speaking, from the master of the hunt's perspective, his hounds are an extension of of him. This is not just a metaphor, because the goal is the can. That's the fox, let's say. This is the whole organism of the hunt. You might want to think about it like the hounds. So this is extending my hand cognitively, and I'm not noticing the pen. I'm feeling out the outside of the can, mapping it, and you look through it. The hounds are the same thing, but much more complicated. So the master of the hunt, he's named these hounds, trained these hounds. They've got an optimal grip cognitively. You grasp at the fox looking for it through the hounds. You say, you've lost the trail of a fox. There's a master of the hounds, all the people behind you. You're, you're the person making all the decisions. The landscaping of your mind looks back, notices a certain behavior of the hound looking and, and, and popping its head up and looking to the side. You know that means that that could be a fox that it would have picked up for a second. Think about it like there's cognitive strings connected, string between you and all the people too. Same with the horse. All the riders are extended cognitively. The excitement of the horse is all feeding in to you and you're experiencing the world differently because seeing it through the horse's eyes, not just because you're on the horse, but you're feeling every, when it becomes nervous, you can feel it through the saddle or whatnot, you can see it. So it is an organism. It's part of, part of the being of the, of the master of the hunt. And all the whippers in, they are appendages too, but that's more solicitation. It's different because they're humans. So you have to deal with, if you wanted a hunt to continue and you're halfway through the day 
and don't want people to abandon the hunt later, you might stop and ask everyone, okay, chaps, if we do go after another fox, will you stay with me to the end of it? Otherwise, people will go, right? Different. It's a different type. It's, they're not your equipment, but you do see through them. And all, and all the people that follow you are part of that. The master, the lead huntsman, will come up to the person, ask them calmly, and get a direction of where the, where the fox went. And so everyone is your sensor in this field of war, and you are making the decision to stop them if they're going too fast, to keep them in line, to keep them in check. And you need to be a particularly bold type of person. To be, you need to be a fast rider. What would holding a sword do? for the ceremony. It would certainly give you a sense of lead hunter, the master of the hounds, being a king, Octopoli. You recently saw Charles sit in the Westminster opening of, this, of Parliament, and he wore a sword. Why is this important? It is equipment that is involved with a procedure of a warrior. It shows us, as a symbol, what the state is to do defend to slay what is an enemy of the English people that's the idea right so if you're in a fox hunt and you have a sword too religiously so you are judging and slaying that which is the dragon as a practice and why is that actually true because when you do kill this fox you purge it from yourself you can't get rid of these archetypes they are like a riverbed that's been carved out over a thousand years even Christianity can't get rid of the pagan past. The pagan past is part of us. What this is all really about is an ordering of, of chaos. It's an ordering of the horse. When you're bonding to it, it's an ordering of the hounds. They are a, a symbol of that process. They were wolves that were domesticated and bred and ordered. It was the wild that was ordered. A great extended effort and dangers faced and survived. Like these are knights, organs of the king's body. And to experience that is to experience what it's like to be a member of a tribe. We, it's primal, it's primordial in our unconscious. Weaving, dodging, going under fences. It's describing a dragon here. The reason why this practice is really slaying a dragon, killing the fox, because war is the ultimate dragon. If that was a fitted psychotechnology, if that was a fitted ritual that worked as a preparation for war, to slay a dragon, it follows that it works now to do the same thing, to show them the frontier. You're getting that same insight. We need practices that take us away from the delusion of sitting inside our subjective bubbles and thinking, ah, oh, isn't this how life's supposed to be? Uber Eats brings me my meals. The internet brings me my porn to <laughs> my women, brings me my women right to the door. This is human, this is how we evolved. And then suddenly you have people end in mass shootings. You have people fighting each other like rabid wolves. When we killed the last wolves in England, we removed the last dragon, essentially, the last natural dragon. There's no bears to kill you like in America. When you, when you go on the fox hunt, you are killing the wolves of England again by doing this within yourself though. It's the wolf within yourself to make sure it doesn't rise again. It's a symbol of beating back the frontier just like in, in a ceremony of eating the body and blood of Christ, you are really eating the body and blood of Christ. If you don't do practices like this, you become deluded because you don't understand what the frontier is like. If you don't keep your context clear, if you're just a city dweller, you make the wrong decisions within the place that lead to dragons emerging within culture, within the citadel. If it's slaying a dragon as a virtue practice, 
in terms of what it does to you physically and how it builds you up, how, it, how it's a practice of courage, which is not foolhardy, not running into things when you shouldn't. You're learning a golden mean between where you should hold back and where you should just dive straight into it. Because a horse, you can't, if it's buckling, you have to spur it on. You can't hold it or you'll come straight off it. Stoic, but take direct, concise action. Again, this is why it worked for the cavalry. If you're on your own, you will stop. You've got much more juice in the tank than you think you've got. When you have others around you that are relying on you and training a perseverance in going after something because you'd go through the whole day's hunt, often you won't get you won't get the fox. You do it knowing that that's the case. And because it's through any weather, it's the better for it if the weather's shit and horrible. It's bringing chaos in. It's persevering even though you don't know if you're going to be successful or not. It's to have that unknown there, but to do it anyway. Think about the knightly virtues, which of course connected to Christianity. It is a practice of humility because your solipsism, especially if you're a city dweller or from the suburbs, of you being the only thing that matters, your imminence bubble being the only thing, you're subservient to this whole thing. You are humbled by coming off the horse constantly, even when you are a pro, that's gonna happen. Also, you're humbled by the people around you because you put them in danger. They'll say, hey, you, you know, watch out, especially if you're new. You're humbled by that. It's temperate because you have to obey certain rules as well. You know when to get angry and when not to because you have to negotiate between all the people that you're with because you're all at risk to each other. So you have to be careful. It has a golden mean between it. You need to lash out quickly with energy and anger at the right moment, especially if you're in command. You're not weak, but you're not always on flying off the handle. You know, <laughs> which is a bit like me. 96 percentile disagreeables. It's a virtue I work on temperance because I'm quick to press the exterminators button when I see demons <laughs> spring down off on their heads. Building this world bubble of the hunt begins well before the hunt actually starts. It's a polishing of boots, the polishing of all the different things that you're using. Hours are spent on this stuff. And you go, why? It's just what it looks like. Who cares? Does it really need to be that shiny? All that work you do changes quite in actuality and reality how your cognition sees the world you're about to enter. Not just conceptually. And when you invest value, different things stick out to you cognitively. Physical world doesn't change, but the, your world does existentially. Think about it. When you invest a shitload of time into a car, rebuilding it, are you going to notice a scratch? The same landscape that you know physically is completely different when you ride a horse through it. You notice different things because they're a danger to you. Don't think peaceful countryside. Think obstacles. But you're speeding towards them at three times the speed of what you could normally run. People coming off their horses left and right. The horse decides whether it's going to jump the thing as you're going towards it. So you're on a ride to hell. All you've got is your wits and your training and your preparation and the rest of the organism that you're working with, that's war. Everything changes. Everything is a danger that used to be just oh, a lovely little pedal, lovely pebbled wall. A lovely shale rock uh, wall is suddenly, I'm dead if this horse doesn't probably jump that. What's so important about the hunt too is that man isn't, there's no such thing as the subject on its own. We're deluded into thinking and our bubble cars that we get into is just you and your body, but no, you're always already a part of a wider organism on the local. Your room is part of your world. Your house is part of your world. That's actually part of your being though. As an organism, all the stuff you care about is part of you. 
people intersect with your world that is part of your existential being. A family member dies, that's actually removing a part of you as an organism. Not just them being removed on their own, a part of you is being killed at the same time. When someone comes into your house and removes an object, they've removed something from your being. That's what private property is. Someone steals your laptop, that's a piece of you. Equipment, your equipment, and you miss it. You're like, oh, I need, this is part, so this is part of you, right? By understanding that equipment's part of our being, we can also see why rites of passage that reach back into the past where we were part of a tribe, bonding with the animals, it takes the people involved in the hunt out of their subjective car bubbles that brings them back into connection with a being with a community, tribal organism. That's why people follow this stuff around from all classes. You're in England still, but enacting and inhabiting all the practices, it's like going to another country, a more primordial country, more primordial way of life as living part of England. When you leave the hunt, you're given a whole set of participatory knowledge, as we know from cognitive science, a renewed uh, perspectival, because a perspective, like I said, a re-evaluated world bubble, it's so powerful because the places that you've seen all your life, the Cotswold, all the country, you know what the country looks like, oh, it's just the country. It's, well, the whole place is lit on fire in England, for instance. We're not looking at it and understanding it. We're just seeing it as we're told it is. What we really did was just pass over the thing. That's not how you understand anything. Understanding is taking it from the world. It's a piece of the world brought in and disclosed to you and your imminence. If you just get the assertion from someone else, it's covered with misapprehensions. So we go out to the country and we think it's just, oh, it's just scientific. It's just particles, <laughs> disconnected particles that come together to make up this tree. And there's no such thing as this thing, this geist that is England. If you always drive a car around through a neighborhood, you'll have a certain evaluative world bubble, walk by foot, and an Englishman should walk by foot in his local area, right? This is advice, I, I've sort of talked about this before, but it's advice I would give anyone. If you have a car, you drive to work or whatnot, fine, you'll take a bus, you take a bus, get off at one stop early, so you walk half an hour to where your home is, doesn't matter where you are, and give this time as well, give this three months, and naturally, the whole world that you thought you knew People will, still, will greet you on the street, especially old people, as that you start to enter a world because the cars themselves are anti-human. Over a year, if you start walking in a place, the seasons that you never noticed before, the coldness in the wind, the wind in the trees, the rain that you're open to, everything changes and it all starts to come alive and you are part of it, this organism. Like William Blake's poem, fields of green are always under the dark satanic mills, in the sense that your intellect, it's, it's the known, the imminent. What this practice does is it strips back that so you can see it for what it really is, phenomenologically. Going to the things that shine forth, going back to a way of existing that is, is primordial. So it's pulling apart that conceptual framework that sits above the raw phenomena. You've ripped apart those dark satanic mills. You finish a hunt and then suddenly you'll probably see a sunset. Oh, here's England. You'll go back to your life. You'll notice things. The world is suddenly different. It took going over to war in World War One. It took going to Australia, to Canada, and, and expats going over to serve in the colonial service to, to really understand what England really was. I never agree with these people at all that say, oh, nostalgia of what we are in our culture. It's not in the place. It's just not true. You just haven't got underneath it.
It's always there. You have to understand it bottom up. But the point is, if you can do that, that means that England's still there. All this stuff is, all the past, everything is still there. Just because it's in us doesn't mean it isn't real. If you're getting stuff out of these works, it's telling you that in all the captured literature that we have, and in the back in our collective unconscious, let's say, what was is as well. What was is as well still exists right now. It's a possibility. We are our possibility. That means it's all still alive there to be enacted. Whilst it still exists, it still exists while it's still a possibility to enact. It is imperative, really, that you, you take a new sort of religious approach to this. The Master of the Hound should have a sword, and they should throw it down. If you want to get even more out of it, if hunters are watching this, try it and see what it does. You say, why should we do that? What's that going to do to have a reading, a sacred reading? It will add a, a greater sense of meaning. It will invest an added sacredness of the hunter and acting. You'll get even more awe out of it. There's a reason why it's in the Green Knight. That's, that's our moral order. You figure out what your moral code is by reference to the narrative order and your greatest heroes. So what do you think the cavalry did before they went into battle with Wellington? They said their prayers. They held a mass for themselves because they were going to meet their maker tells everyone too this is Eng English it's more than just a show the Sikhs have their sword it's a ritual a religious ritual we should have a sword add those two elements they're two sides of the same coin because the reading the mass itself or the sacred reading is about civilization they're about to go out into chaos into the unknown to face this dragon it ends with the sword which is the physical manifestation of the spirit it's a ritual sacrifice to the gods Preferably, if you could have a, 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 a priest turn up, they'd be willing to. Or, or perhaps a master, you could designate someone that is a, I don't know, poetic of some kind. to do a reading, a sacred reading, and hold some sort of icon, religious icon, whatever, something of England that's sacred. The end of the, the hunt, you'll have a greater sense of a lifting up of the spirit, which is what this is all about. By realizing more and more that this is a religious English ritual, I think it'll become clear to other people too, and people should start talking about it this way. The website uh, at greenwood.media or scottmanion.com, there's membership content there and membership videos. We've got a growing membership on Discord and participate in this growing movement and conversation. And uh, yeah, so the current members on YouTube that are still on YouTube, jump on the website and become a member there and, disable, and I'll disable your YouTube one because I just, I can't even message you or anything or send you emails of when there's new content. They do that on purpose, so it's better to get it off YouTube. But yes, uh, we're aspiring and developing and growing this folk unfolding. We're growing this knowledge and wisdom that's in our own culture, pointing it out so it manifests itself. Also, you might want to grab this if you're into cryptocurrency. I made some NFTs that uh, you might want to buy if you believe in the project. I did some designs that are kind of like uh, Magic the Gathering cards. <laughs> but. It's an investment. It's the first Greenwood, and there's even a spelling mistake in there. So that's, you know, it's authentic.